what I was saying is I want us to be careful how we transition this morning because there is such a holiness in the room. And I want us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. When Jesus shows up in holiness like that, it's for a reason. There's a reason. Are you identifying what's happening in the room? It's for a reason. And the reason that there's chaos on the backside of it is because there's a demonic stronghold that's wanting to come in and steal what it is, what Jesus is trying to establish. Don't get distracted. Don't get distracted by the peripherals that are going on in the room. It's just nonsense. This is what happens, and we need to quickly identify what's happening when holiness has moved in. Things shift quickly when God rolls in, in his holiness the way that he did this morning, where you feel like if I move, I could disrupt this thing. Am I right? Like you feel a little bit on notice, like if I breathe the wrong way, it just feels like such a tender moment if you could break it with the wrong thought even. You know what I'm saying? And the distraction is just stuff that we've allowed over time, you know? We've allowed it to come in and have a say, and we give it credence and attention, when really all eyes need to be on whom? Jesus. We're to behold who? Jesus. But our attention is fixed on so many other things. We are a distractible people. Do you want to know what's going on in heaven at all times? All focus is on one. All attention is on one. And I love it that we went there this morning, that we began to cry out the very praise that's happening in heaven at all times. You know what it is? You can enter in. You can enter into the praise of heaven at any time because you can be sure that it's the same thing on repeat and they don't get tired of saying it. They don't get tired of saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over again because they know that declaring his majesty is the only thing that matters. It's the only thing that matters. They cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, is, and is to come. Basically declaring he's the same for all time. He hasn't changed. My attention might change, but he's not. And all of heaven's attention is fixed on the holiness of God. And things shift, move, transform when we enter into the same praise that's happening in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, was, and who is to come. It reminded me this morning of an encounter that we actually had here one time. We had a, a, a little um, a gathering, and um, when we were trying to sort through some things, I'm trying not to give too many details, um, to be sensitive to what was happening, but there was, there was tension in the room and, and there was infighting going on in the group of people that gathered. And we decided that in order to really be able to engage the battle that was going on in the room, that we first needed to make sure that our eyes were drawn up toward Jesus. Because do you know that you can't actually fix a problem without the help of Jesus? Like, don't try it. You'll just make a mess. And so we began to worship 
in this moment. We set aside time. We're going to worship. We're going to, we're going to just command all of our attention toward the lamb. And it was very interesting. What began to happen was competition for eyes. Competition for eyes entered into the room in one direction. We have a command to be worshiping and have all eyes focused on Jesus. And then there's something else going on in the room that's going, look at me, see me, see me, see me, see me. And I, I could see eyes wide open, like, what have we here? Because for the majority of us, we had never experienced the demonic in that way before. Ever. We had never experienced the demonic in the way that it was showing up in the room that night. And it was pulling for attention. It wanted eyes to be distracted. It wanted to take our focus, steal our focus from Jesus, who's worthy, right? The only one found worthy. And shift focus to seeing what was going on in the room. And I thought, Jesus, I do not want to react to this. I want to react to you, right? This needs to always be our response in moments. I want to react to you, Jesus. This is pulling for a reaction, but you are the one that is worthy. So he said to me, and you just began to cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. When we do that, when we enter in to what is happening in the heavenlies, it pulls it down. It pulls that dominion, that same authority down to where you're at. And so I was just like, everybody start saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the louder we got and the more crazy we got, the louder this thing over here got. But guess what one? Holiness will trump anything else every single time. Say holiness wins. With some. Holiness wins. Every single time, holiness will win. Every time. You can test this. If you want to shift something quickly, just enter into what's already happening in the heavenlies. What's happening where Jesus is at? By crying out holy, we start tugging on his dominion. We start confessing that his governing power is all Now this thing, this particular night, continued to manifest throughout the whole night. But because we had already established Jesus as the Holy One, it had less power. And let me tell you, it continued to get bolder and bolder as the night went on because it wants attention. What's seeking your attention? What has your affection? Is it Jesus? Or is it the distraction? And distractions can come in many forms. Right? Right, Vicki? <laughs> I see you. <laughs> it really can. Distractions can come in all kinds of forms. Have you ever been in a moment where you're like, it's just me and Jesus and we're going to like have this moment. We're going to pray and it's going to be great and I'm going to experience him. We're going to encounter things and I'm going to come out refreshed. And all of a sudden, I need a Snickers. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, like all of a sudden you like have this ridiculous craving for something that you don't normally eat and, and it's like consuming you. That thing is looking for your affection. Okay, that's never been my thing. If that happens, I'll be like, yes, Lord, I will eat these. Because <laughs> that's not my thing. But I wanted to share that with you because it's really important that we understand how powerful it is to enter into the holies that are ringing out at all times. All times. 
Do you know they do the same thing over and over? Never grow tired of declaring the holiness of the Lamb. Their eyes are fixed. Day in, day out, their eyes are fixed. And they don't get bored staring into the holiness. In fact, his holiness is so significant that it provokes the next holy. Are we that zeroed in on him? We need, we need blinders. Seriously, like put your hands up to the side of your face. And you can't see anything to the left or the right. You can only see out front. This is what we, yes, Hunter, some of us do need. <laughs> this is me. <laughs> like I need more of a scope. <laughs> but we do. Like we're so easily distracted by We need to allow him to provoke the next holy We're talking about praise this morning. And I want you to really quick pretend like there's a, a, a tray out before you. And I want you to take everything you think you know about praise and just go ahead and toss it on the tray. Can you do that? Like, seriously, come on. Just, you know. If you don't know anything, then you're in good shape. <laughs> it's likely that what you know about praise fits, but it's also likely that it's not everything. We box things in because we love to be in control of things and we love knowledge. But praise is far more than we think that it is. If I could define praise, I would have to take us to the part of the book of Samuel where God is fed up with King Saul and he declares that he has found a man who's after his heart. Making that the very definition of praise. Someone who's after the heart of God. David was from what tribe? Anyone? Judah. David's from the tribe of Judah. What do you know about Judah? Praise! Judah means praise. Do you know that the first time that the Bible mentions praise is at the birth of Judah? The first time, does that mean that we didn't praise God prior to Judah's birth? Judah was a man, by the way, in case you didn't know. To divine praise, we need to understand that first, we have to be people who are after the heart of God. David is known for what? His worship, his praise. And because David is so known for praise, for worship, and because we're so familiar with the Psalms or the songs of David, we have taken praise and we put it in a corner and said, this is what it looks like. But it's not the whole picture. Yes, song instruments, that's all a part of Praise. You can use your voice to sing and you can use instruments to praise God, but it's not the whole story. There's so much more to it. So much more to it. And we find that in the life of Judah. Let's see. Where do we want to start? Let's go to Genesis 29. Does everybody have your Bible? So we're going to the first book. Chapter 29. Let me give you a little backstory. Jacob was a man who was born of, does anybody know? Who's Jacob's father? Anyone, anyone, anyone? 
Isaac is Jacob's father. Jacob had a brother. His name was Esau, and Esau was born before Jacob. Therefore, Esau was to get the inheritance, right? Long story short, Jacob steals it by tricking his father Isaac into giving it to him by dressing up like Esau, who apparently was a very hairy, stinky man. And his father, <laughs> his father's eyesight was failing, and so he could only determine his sons by the way that they felt or smelled. And Jacob was successful in stealing his inheritance. He goes on to to um, to where his uncle lived. His uncle's name was Laban, and he asked for Laban's daughter. Rachel, he wanted to marry her. And Laban said, sure, but you have to work for me for seven years. And once that was done, Laban tricked Jacob into marrying his oldest daughter, Leah, Leah, however you choose to pronounce it. I'm more familiar with Leah. So Jacob accidentally marries the wrong girl. <laughs> it's so weird. It must just be a really dark region. <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> and he complains to Laban and says, you tricked me. I wanted Rachel. And he said, well, you can have Rachel too, but it's not our custom to give the second-born daughter but the first. He said, if you work another seven years for me, you can have Rachel also. And he agreed. And so he married both daughters of Laban, Leah, and Rachel. I know, weird. Weird, but it was just how they did things then. They had to populate the world somehow. So in Genesis 29, we're going to start in, in chapter 31. And what you need to know before we start reading is that Jacob loved Rachel. He loved Rachel. He loved Rachel. If I were Leah, I would feel a little bit scorned because of how much more Jacob loved Rachel. Verse 31. Now when Jehovah saw that Leah was... Anyone see that word? What does yours say? Unloved. Mine says hated. Now, when Jehovah saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So God saw Leah in her, her situation, in her opposition, and he opens her womb so that she can have children. And this is what happens. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because Jehovah has looked upon my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. And she is, she conceived again and bore a son and said, because Jehovah has heard that I am hated, he has therefore given me this son also. So she called his name Simeon. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be joined to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was to be called Levi. I wrote these out because I think it's fascinating. What she said was, Jehovah has looked upon my affliction, son number one. Jehovah has heard that I am hated, son number two. Jehovah will join my husband to me. These are what their names mean. Can you feel her shame? This woman is scorned. She's filled with shame and she is unloved and she knows it. And then she has a fourth son. And she says, let me read it from here. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise Jehovah. 
Therefore, she called that son Judah. And after that, she ceased bearing. In the middle of opposition, in the middle of deep shame, Leah makes a decision. There's no reason for her to make this level of decision. Most of us would side with shame, be like, well, nothing ever good happens to me. Right? Not Leah. She says, this time, I will praise Jehovah. And she names him praise. She names her fourth son praise. Isn't that incredible? Okay, let's jump over to um, Genesis 49. Just hold your finger there for a second. So I want to tell you a, a little bit more about Judah. So between the two wives and their concubines or slaves, Jacob ends up with 12 sons. Rachel's womb is finally open and she has two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Guess which two sons were her favorite? Well, guess which son? She died giving birth to Benjamin. But guess which son was, was the favorite one of Jacob? Joseph. He's the favored son. And he knows it. My kids think that there's a favorite in our family and they think they know it, but it's not true. It's ridiculous. It's you. <laughs> You're my favorite autumn ever. Favorite autumn. So Joseph is so favored that Jacob goes out of his way to have a coat made for him. We know it as the coat of many colors. And Joseph gets a little crazy and he starts sharing these wild dreams that he's had of himself and his brothers, including his father, <laughs> bowing down to him. This gets the other boys a little bit angry. They're provoked to jealousy. And they decide we've had enough of him. And the plan to kill him begins. Joseph is sent out by his father to take lunch to the boys who are out working in the field. And he does so because he's the favored one. And he goes out in his coat of colors. And they can see him from a long way off. And they're going, okay, now's our moment. We're going to kill him. And Simeon says, or is it Reuben? Who is the first? Simeon or Reuben? Reuben. Reuben says, no, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into a well and, and let him, you know, he'll, he'll die there. Like, we can't have his blood crying out. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Attached to us. We have a spoon on aisle one. <laughs> so that's what they did. They grabbed Joseph. They threw him into a well, and they sat there, and they ate their lunch, listening to their little brother whine, help me, save me. <laughs> Do you feel outed? <laughs> I love you, though. <laughs> and they don't care. And they just don't care that he's whining and complaining because he's been such a pain. But then Judah speaks up and he says, why should we kill our brother when we could sell him? 
And all the brothers agree that this is a good idea, that they should just go ahead and sell their brother into slavery. And it just so happened that a group of, of Midianites were headed that way, and they pull him out of the well and they sell him. They sell him for 20 pieces of silver. Judah means praise. The reason I'm telling you this story is because I want you to understand what you can do with your gift of praise. It's not stewarded well. The praise that's been put inside of us is usually ignited when it's provoked. And if we're not crying out holy to provoke the next holy, then we're going to find ourselves in a position of jealousy. And it's going to be geared towards one another. Our eyes are going to be taken off of the lamb. And the holy will be taken out of our mouth. And we're going to start focusing on, oh gosh, Serenity's got a really cool gift that God gave her. Just look at her in her coat! And when I take my eyes off of the lamb and I put them on Serenity in her really cool coat and how favored she is by the Lord, and I fail to see her through the eyes of God, my praise turns into jealousy. And the next thing you know, I don't care whether she lives or dies. Our praise is provoked. Do you see what, what can happen? Praise is actually violent. Praise is violent, and I'll get to that in a second. We've got to be careful how we're utilizing praise because it only belongs to one. There's only one found worthy. Serenity's not worthy of my praise. Now, I can be fond of her, and I can compliment her, and I can purge her, right? You just keep doing you. You just keep, come on, you know? I can do that, and it's part of my praise complex to be able to do so, to be able to spur her on. But when my eyes are not fixed on the lamb, praise quickly can turn to jealousy. And that's dangerous because you end up selling your brother for 20 pieces of silver. Now, can I just draw your attention to the New Testament? There was another Judah that lived in the New Testament. We know him as Judas. It's not really known what his origin actually is. It, it's, it's likely he wasn't even a Jew. But he carried the name of the land. And he was from the southern part of Judah. And the southern part of Judah is where Jesus was not received. Jesus says a prophet is not received in his hometown. Jesus wasn't allowed to do miracles in his hometown because of the rise of wrong praise. Yes? This Judah, Judas, ends up following suit. And I want you to know that this disciple, out of the twelve, Judas is the only disciple that doesn't have to lay his life down to follow Jesus. He just continues on. Everyone else is pulled from their trade. Everyone. Everyone else is challenged in this area. You must lose your life to follow me. Not Judas. Judas gets to continue on with what he was already doing. He already handled money. And now he's been brought in as Jesus' treasurer. He's not laying anything down. There was no cost. There's no cost for Judas to follow Jesus. And Judas sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. You've got to be careful with what we're doing with our praise. We can either lift Jesus high 
and make much of who he is and pull his kingdom down to be the governing authority all around us. Or we can turn our praise into jealousy and we end up selling our siblings. Thirty pieces of silver was the going price for the Savior? But the problem is, is this is what we do all the time. We shortchange Jesus. When we don't lay our lives down appropriately, when we do not count the cost, we're shortchanging Jesus. We're putting a value on who he is as Savior and saying, this is just what you're worthy of. Come on, Jesus, I I, I only have 30 minutes because I got a day. I got a day. I got to get this done, that done. There's a game on later. I just don't, I just don't have time, Jesus. Or when he, when he, when he ups the ante and he's like, I'm going to ask you to give that up. I'm going to ask you to lay that down. Yes, you once were this, but now I'm telling you, you are this. And we mull around in that and we're like, I don't know if I heard you right. Suddenly my ears are stopped up and I just don't know if I can hear you. And we play in disobedience. Let's stop calling it quick obedience or delayed obedience when it's just simply disobedience. When he says to do something, we should be quick. Because we've already counted the cost, right? We've already told him he's worthy. We've already told him he's the worthy one. We've laid hold of our praise and we've already declared, you're worthy of it all. But Jesus, please just don't mess with my Wednesday afternoons. I know too much about you guys. But do you know what I'm saying? He's asking for everything. When we don't give him everything, we fall into shortchanging him of what he's really worthy of. To understand more about who Judah is, you should have already turned to Genesis 49. We're going to start in verse 8. At the end of Jacob slash Israel's life, God changed his name to Israel. He calls the boys together and he prophesies over each of them. And it's really great. You should read it from the beginning, but we're not going to today. We're going to start in eight because what we care about right now is Judah. Judah means what? Yes. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son will bow down before you. Judah is a young lion. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he stretches out like a lion and like a lioness. Who will rouse him up? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robe in the blood of grapes. Dark are his eyes with wine and white are his teeth with milk. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. You'll be like a lion. Not just any lion, but a lion that's after its prey. And can you tell me why on earth praise looks like this? Like we're trying to summon something? Where did we get the idea that praise was stationary? Where did we get this idea that something more was required of me to chase down God's enemy? Judah has this great turnaround. So Judah gets married. 
Judah has some kids. Two of them are quite evil. And in this time, when one, when the oldest son was married to someone and they died, the next son in line was to marry his sister-in-law. And so Judah's first son gets dead because he's evil. God kills him. I know. I, I know. We don't talk about the things that God does that are like too much for us. He's evil. He had to die. The next son is then to marry his wife, his sister-in-law, and he refuses to give up his seed, if you know what I mean. He refuses to impregnate her. He had to die. There is a third son. But at this point, Judah's like, my kids keep dying, and the youngest I'm just going to keep for myself. But he had already promised Tamar, Tamar, however you want to say her name, that she could have the third son. And Jacob, or Judah's like, as soon as he's of age, like, just who your debts, Tamar? When he's ready, you can have him. And Judah withholds from her and does not give her the next son in line. And so it ends up that Judah loses his wife. And one day he's going into town and there at the city gates is a prostitute or so he thinks. And Judah decides, eh, why not? What Judah doesn't know is the prostitute is not a prostitute. It's his daughter-in-law who's very angry with him and decides to trick him into having sex with him because he withheld his son. And Tamar is so cunning in this story that she makes him give something to her so that she could rightly identify him when... That needed to happen. And he promised her that she could have, I think it was like goats or something like that. And he, so the next day, he sends his servant in to meet this prostitute to give her the gifts that he promised. And she's nowhere to be found. In fact, all the city people are like, I don't know what you're talking about. There isn't a prostitute that lives here. So he's like, ah, guess I don't get caught. <laughs> you, know, so you know that's what he's thinking. Yeah, the Angie paraphrase. And Tamar ends up pregnant. And she's pregnant with twins. And when Judah finds out, and he has no idea that they are his twins, until she takes the possession that was Judah's. She just dangles it before his face. It was me. And Judah's response to this is so interesting to me. He counts it to, to Tamar as righteousness. Because she was in the right. She knew what was hers. The line of Judah was hers, and she was to have a son from the line of Judah. And Judah withheld. So she made a way. This moment is so defining for Judah that he, he sees righteousness put on display, and he's like, I repent. And he turns back to God. And for probably the first time in his life, he's seen things more clearly. And when things got really bad in their area because a famine hit, Jacob slash Israel was sending all of his sons into Egypt to get help for the famine. But Jacob is concerned about the youngest one, Benjamin. And he's like, I don't want Benjamin to go. He's the youngest. And remember, he's Rachel's son. So he's probably, he's already lost Rachel's other son, Joseph. 
right? Because he was sold. Benjamin's the last one. He's like, please, like, protect him. And Judah steps up and Judah says this. Father, I will lay my life down on Benjamin's behalf before I allow him to be hurt. This is the essence of praise, is a life laid down to take on the heart of the Father. The essence of praise is a life laid down to take on the heart of the Father. They go, and it pans out like Benjamin's in trouble. And Judah's like, no, take me instead. Little did they know that the one who was threatening to take Benjamin's life was their brother, Joseph. He lives! It's a fascinating story. We're not talking about that today. But Judah was willing to lay his life down for his brother. No wonder Jacob says this about him in chapter 49. No wonder he's saying, your, your brothers will bow down to you. We need a better revelation of what praise actually is. And I know that we really have got cornered because of David. David is also in the line of Judah. He represents the heart of praise, right? We see his psalms. We love his psalms. They're, they're full of life, real life, authentic life. They're raw. Like one second I am in the depths of despair and the next I'm, I'm being ridiculous about how amazing God is. This is David. He's moving from one end of the spectrum to the next in, in a single verse. And these are his songs. These are his poems. And what we've done is we've taken, we've taken the gesture of David and we've said, praise his song. Must sing praise. That's not what it is. Praise is what we have positioned ourselves to be after the heart of God. And that can look like anything. That expands it, doesn't it? It, it, it makes it so that I don't actually have to have the ability to sing in front of people. To be able to wield the weapon of praise effectively. It just means that I stand for the heart of God. And it means, please hear me, that I can identify the enemies of God that, and I'm willing to take them out. You guys, we've gotten soft in our little Christian bubbles to the point where we call evil good and good evil. We're not siding with Jesus. He's after people who can carry his praise, who will carry his very heart on the earth. And we know because we made a big deal about this for the last probably two years, what praise actually is is we are making much of Jesus in the midst of opposition in the same way that Leah did. Isn't she such a brilliant example for us? She is scorned. She is shamed. She is living. Just her life is a mess. She hates living. And she says, this time, this time I will praise God. This time I'm not worried. I'm not worried about who he's going to choose. I don't care who Jacob's going to choose this time. I choose God in the midst of opposition. And she brings an expression of the heart of God to life in that moment. When we ought to praise him in the midst of opposition, things have no choice but to change. They have to change. We know because scripture tells us that he's enthroned on what? 
He's enthroned on the praises of his people. When opposition is coming up against us, our knee-jerk reaction has to be to make much of the heart of God. Why? Because it's likely that what's coming after us is a squatter on your land. We've got a whole lot of demonic activity going on all around us, and we're just like, We're apathetic and indifferent about it. Uh, well, I guess you can have that piece. I'll just stand over here. You can have that piece of me. I don't know. You can continue to haunt me. How many of you feel haunted every once in a while? Don't lie to me. I know you do. Because it's normal. It's normal to have stuff coming at us 100 miles an hour. Testing your praise. What are you going to choose? Are you going to side with Jesus or are you going to side with the enemy? The enemy has all kinds of lies to hurl at you. Are you going to allow lies to form you or praise? When we stop in the middle of opposition and we just declare, hold on a second. I'm ready for this. I know who he is and what he's capable of. And you don't stand a chance. So you can take your little eye and go home. And I think I shared this sometime last week. Maybe not. I don't know what I've shared and what I haven't. But I had this moment. I was downstairs in my office and I had this moment where this stupid, do you ever feel like the, like the things that, that surround you sometimes are kind of like storms and they have history? I feel like that. There's just one thing in particular that I just really just like it, it gets me like it reaches in and it just squeezes the life out of me. And it's like, you know, and I'm really not being that dramatic. I know that you have these kinds of things happen to you. The things that cause your heart to race. But they're just lies. They're just lies to get you off your game. But this time, I didn't just sit there. This time, I got up and I began to move. The worst thing you can do when you have something coming at you is sit still. Don't sit still. Get up and move. Shake that thing off. You've got to move. And so I just began to do the only thing I knew to do, and it was to say, Jesus! I just began to shout his name, Jesus! Jesus, I know that your name is higher than whatever this nasty thing that's coming after me right now. Your name is higher. Jesus. There's power in his name. Just say his name a little bit. Jesus. Oh, my God. See, they're just like, it's so powerful. And do you know what happened? This thing lost all of its power because it lost my affection. And then Jesus just enters into the whole scene because he loves to do that. He's so heroic. And he goes, Andy, take that thing and throw it off. And immediately when he said that, I saw these lions. They were nasty looking lions. There wasn't anything majestic about them. They're the lions that are prowling around the earth to kill us. You know, you remember in John 10, 10 where it says the enemy has come to kill still in the story? It's prowling lions. They're out to ravage you. And so Jesus, Jesus opens my eyes and I can see these lions. And there's like three of them and they're mangy and gross. And he said, Andy, take this thing off and throw it to them. And the moment that I went to go do it, it was like this chunk of meat in my hand. And I tossed it to them and they started fighting over this thing because all they wanted was something that tasted like the lie that they sent. They didn't care about me at all. They're in it for the lie. So all I had to do was take that thing off of me and toss it to them and let them devour it. And they went on their way. If we can learn to feed the enemy what it is that it's throwing at us, we'll, we'll stand a chance. But Jesus is the one that got the praise in that moment. I wasn't splitting focus. I wasn't saying... Okay, well, I'm going to mull over this for just a second, and then Jesus, I'll get back to you. 
all of my affection shifted into Jesus in that moment. And nothing was left centered on this thing that was trying to come after me. All eyes on Jesus. And here's what I want to tell you. You have to be careful what you're doing with your time. You have to be careful. If he's not the most important thing in your day, you're missing it. And we have to be those who are going after the audacious thing that God is showing us. We can't be content to live off of our ability to stick the landing when he told us to do it in the first place and he made it so easy that all we had to do was say yes. But we're like, ta-da! And then we just stay there. And we're like, look at me, God, I'm still sticking the landing. And he's like, I'm not there anymore! He didn't call you to just stick the landing. He wanted you to obey so you could move on. Yes? Don't get caught up in your ability to obey. That's not that difficult. Don't get caught up in how proud you are of your obedience. Because that's not praise. That's distraction. Keep your eyes fixed on him. We have to, you know, the children of Israel had to keep their eyes fixed on. Their attention had to be on the ark. Because when the ark moved, they were to move. They didn't, if they, if they played over here in the, yes, but look what I, look what I just did. They got left behind. They had to move with God. And that's the invitation. To move with the heart of God. One last final warning. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. There are spiritual things that actually are a distraction right now. There's a lot that's going on in spirit realms. And if it's not got you fixed on Jesus, it is a distraction right now. If you want to have the experience of all experiences, look into the Lamb. Everything your craving and desire is found there with Him. Why am I saying this? Because you're made for praise. And I'm afraid that you're going to use the praise to be like, oh, but I experienced this. And it's so fun. And look at me. And you're lost. And you're just like the wind. And you don't really have any substance. And you're just whatever. It's the Lamb that we have to be his seven eyes and his seven horns. Look into his seven eyes. It's the sevenfold spirit of God. Everything that you're craving and desiring is found in this gaze. If you want to go deep, go deep there. Don't get caught up in the peripherals. We can look at John as the example. He's in the very throne room, the revelator. In the very throne room. He's in the throne room. Like, he can hear the lamb breathing. And an angel says, who's found worthy to open the scroll? To break the seals and open the scroll? Who's found worthy? And John cries. He's like, oh, no, no. He falls to the ground and he starts breathing. He's like, there's no one. There's, there's, there's no one found worthy. And the angel's like, dude, get a grip. You know? We get caught up in all of these other things. There are so many things going on in the spirit realm that can just really like draw us in. And it's not the lamb. You want to know what the enemy's number one plan is right now? To deceive you. To distract you. To get your eyes off of Jesus. To get you to use your praise for something else out there. If this can happen to John the Revelator, it can happen to us. And in the book of Revelation, you see John doing this, not just once, 
gets caught up in the, the glamour of what's going on in the realms. Guys, there's only one place, one place that we belong, and it is before the King of Kings beholding the Lamb of God. He is the only one found worthy, and he is the only one to be lifted high. What happens when we lift Jesus high? He draws all men into himself. Your one and only job as someone who functions in praise is to be about God's business, to behold the Lamb, to lift him high. And I just want to invite you to start asking God, what does praise look like in me? What does praise look like in me? It's not just good and upright is the Lord therefore. Well, it's not just fast music. I'm married to a drummer. Praise isn't fast music. Praise has substance. Praise is about the heart of God and standing with him no matter what. You, when you give yourself to Jesus, you give up your rights to opinions. You don't get to have an opinion. Your opinion is God. And that means that his enemies become your enemies. And there's something about Judah that is so absolutely, you know, to put your hands on somebody's throat, you know, that's like, that's intense, that's intimate, right? To be that close to be able to put your hands on somebody's throat. And that's what, that's what Jacob says about Judah. Your hands will be at your enemy's throat. It's not like your foot will be on your enemy's throat, which was said about another person in the Bible. Not Judah, your hands will be on your enemy's throat. Why? Because God is looking for a people who will stand as praise and take out the enemy when it's taken up residence in you. We need deliverance. And that's what that means. That I am willing, I am willing to see what God wants me to see and be like, no, not on my watch. It's that praise has to have a violent response to where I'm not going to leave Christy in a state where I can see what the enemy's doing to her. And I'm not seeing women who walk because I think that they've got demons. That's not what I'm doing. I'm just trying to explain that there is a violence about being a part of the tribe of Judah that we need to adopt. We desperately need to adopt because we have been like, it's okay. They'll fall out eventually. It's, it's, yeah. Sure, it's been 10 years, but, you know, eventually they'll pull it together. No, if we have people in our lives who are going down the same mountain for the hundredth time, love them enough to be a praise instrument that you will put your hands at their enemy's throat. It's part of praise. Oh yeah, it's a lot. But you need to ask Jesus, what do I look like as an instrument of praise in your hands? How do you want to utilize me? If it's all about the heart of the Father, we need to know what his heart for us is. How does he intend to use us? Yes? Can we all agree to that? Stand up. Oh, Jesus. We just thank you that you've shown up here and just manifested your holiness all around. We love being in the midst of your holiness.
We don't really know what to do when we're there. We admit that. But we love it. We love being in your holiness. God, would you just continue to download what it means to effectively praise you, God, because we want to be those who can pull the kingdom down. We want to be those who know how to work within your dominion. And would you encourage us, Holy Spirit, the next time that a lie comes after us, that we would rise up with praise in our mouth and we would make much of you, Jesus. And that we would do exactly what you show us to do. To throw off our enemy. That we wouldn't fall for the same lies. Jesus. We want to be those who know how to make much of you. No matter what. No matter what. Everywhere we go, we're just, we're just making much of you just because we exist. Let your praise be on our lips. Jesus, let your praise be on our lips and let us be wise enough to borrow praise when we don't know if we have our own. But we can enter in at any moment and cry out holy. We can cry out worthy. We can cry out Jesus. Lamb of God, we yield to you. And we fix our eyes on you. Amen. And I just want to extend an invitation that if there's anybody in this room or anybody listening in the atmosphere, that have never laid their life down to follow Jesus. Now's a great opportunity. Now's a great opportunity for you to yield to Jesus and give up your life. By saying, I recognize the value on you, Jesus, and it's greater than anything I could ever hope for on my own. And it's just simple. Your life for mine, Jesus. Your life for mine. Are we doing communion? What? You want to do that? You want to do that? What? Huh? going to come and do communion. In talking about praise today, I think there is there's no better way to solidify that in our hearts than taking the Lord's Supper and and letting that be a moment of praise that we can enter into right now and and meet with Jesus. This is this is a great way to remember what it is that He did on the cross in a sacrifice for us as an offering on our behalf. So it's it's back here on the counter uh, when you're ready. And just take it with a heart of praise in, in celebration of what was done on your behalf. Father, we just thank you so much that we have the opportunity today to, to be with you, to praise you, to offer you the worth that you deserve. And right now we want to, to take the bread and, and drink of the cup in, in remembrance of what you did on our behalf. And celebrate, celebrate you and all that you accomplished on the cross. And everything done through your resurrection. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.